1: Come and worship this morning as we celebrate our third advent. The third candle is the candle of joy, and it recalls Mary, the angel, and all those that found joy at the birth of Christ. And Mary said, quoting Scripture, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, my spirit rejoices in my Savior. It also reminds us that Scripture commands us to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And it points to the reality of joy of His second coming. I'll ask as we come to light this candle this morning, 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Father, we come before you this morning to express the joy, not only of your coming, the first time to save us from the penalty of sin and the power, but we look forward with great joy and hope at that second coming when we'll be released from the presence of sin. Lord, may our hearts be filled with that type of joy. May it be expressed in our singing, in our prayers, Lord, in our listening and obeying of your word. And Lord, may we just join with joyful hearts this morning. As you take your Bibles and turn to Galatians 4, as we continue on in our study in Galatians. In Galatians, Paul is defending the gospel. And I've said last week, every generation is called to protect and defend the gospel against counterfeits. Amen? This gospel is worthy of defending. We're commanded to hold the gospel dear, to share with others, and to live out its implications in our everyday life. It is our hope and reason for living and serving. So far in Galatians, Paul has shared... The many blessings we receive from God in salvation. We looked at these last week. It was that of election, of God choosing us to be his children. It's in calling, God drawing us to himself. Regeneration, God making us alive by giving us a new heart and a new nature. Conversion in which God leads us to repent and allow us to put our trust in him. And then as we saw the last few weeks, is that of adoption. God adopting us into His family, and we're continuing that vein this week. But also, as we saw last week, the one that ties it all together is that of union with Christ, as God counts Christ's work and obedience as ours, as God views us as He views Christ. This salvation, these blessings, this inheritance comes from the grace of God through faith alone and not of works That's been the great debate here between Galatia and the Judaizers and Paul. It's now become how one becomes a member of Abraham's family in order to receive those blessings. And we found that those blessings of Abraham is the entrance into the family of God. Hence, it's very important then, how does one gain that inheritance, those blessings? And we found that the only entrance or the only way into God's family is that of adoption. Let me give you something. No one is naturally born into God's family. We are all adopted, Jews and Gentiles alike. Even a Jew was not a believer or a family of God because of his ethnic or descendants or his genealogy, but they also were adopted into God's family. And that's where we find ourselves as we look at from slave to son in Galatians chapter 4. So join with me as we look at Galatians chapter 4, 1 through 7, where he writes, I mean that an heir. Now we're continuing on about the inheritance. As long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Father, we come before you, and we pray that you would open up your word to us this morning. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would do its work. Let us not quench it, Father. I pray that I would just speak things that are edifying Lord, I pray that you would bless uh, the, the, the study. And Lord, as we go through, let us differentiate between what is your word and what's mere opinion. And Father, we pray that we would take in obedience and into activity those things that you called us and commanded us to do. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. CNN Financial reports, American retirees expect to leave an average inheritance of almost $177,000 to their heirs. This is the sixth highest of any country, according to an HSBC survey of more than 16,000 people in over 15 countries. Australian retirees are the most generous with inheritance, averaging more than $500,000 thanks in part to the country's high real estate prices. Singapore was second at 371000 while the United Kingdom, France, and Taiwan followed. He goes on to write, Around the world, 69% of retirees planned to leave an inheritance to their offspring at an average of $148,000. Retirees in India were most likely to do so with 86% of people expecting to leave an inheritance behind while American retirees were the least likely with only 56% expecting to give inheritance to their children. I don't know if you ever received an inheritance from anyone. I don't know if you're expecting one. Uh, For many of us, uh, I remember in the 70s and 80s, you'd see a Winnebago going down the street with a little bumper sticker that says, I'm spending my children's inheritance. I don't know if you're expecting or have ever received anything, but inheritance is something obviously that most parents want to leave their children, for the most part, generally. We have a desire to save and create more wealth and gain so that we can give our children something. Unfortunately, my children's debt may be more than what I leave them, but I tend to leave them at least something. Particularly, they desire to leave something for their children. In today's passage, Paul presents God as a providential father who carefully plans for the welfare of his children. And so with that, let's open up as I share with you three ways that God does that. Three ways that God plans for the welfare of his children. We see the first one as God prepares his children to inherit. Let's look again at verse 1 where Paul writes, I mean that an heir, as long he is as a child is no different from a slave. What a strange phrase. For though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Paul here is using a human analogy of comparing a son with a slave in order to paint a picture of a minor child, one who has not yet come of age to receive and manage his inheritance. While he is a minor, that son is no different from a slave, in though he may own vast wealth of properties and monies, he has no control of his own. He's not allowed to spend it, he's not allowed to manage it, he's not allowed to do anything with it. He is under guardians and tutors and managers who handle his affairs until he reaches the age that's usually set by his father when he'll receive his inheritance. Paul is continuing his lesson on the history of salvation and he uses this illustration to help us understand salvation's plan. The Judaizers in the Church of Galatia though are confused about the purpose of the Mosaic law and that's what's at debate here. The Mosaic law, obedience to the Mosaic law and salvation by grace through faith alone. And they're confused about the purpose of the Mosaic law and God's plan of salvation. They do not understand the storyline of the Bible. And you may hear me say that many times. Some time ago, we actually went through Sunday school class of the storyline of the Bible. But let me go ahead and give it to you in a nutshell, just to catch you up. There's a few basic facts you need to understand about the Bible. And let me give it to you here. God created all that there was, and He created it good. Good. And he put man and woman into the garden in order to be his mediators, his representatives here on earth. And they were commanded to keep and to protect the garden. But yet they fell. And we understand that in Genesis chapter 3, that Satan comes and they wind up rebelling against God. And after that fall, all of creation was put under a curse of death. Yet God still promised a redeemer in Genesis 3:16. The law was put in place under Moses as a guardian, a placeholder, if you would, until the Redeemer of Genesis 3.16 would come. The law was not able or given to give life or to rescue us from that curse. It was designed, in other words, to increase sin and to show us our need of a savior, of a redeemer. Not only that, no one could perfectly obey the law and all of its commands. With that, we see because of that, the law made uh, allowances for the disobedience. Not that it gave it a pass, but that something would have to die. And We see that in the sacrificial system. However, the blood of goats and bulls were only temporary, and they were not sufficient to pay for the sins of mankind and to release us, from that curse salvation was always by grace through faith and not just obedience and we saw that when he said that Abraham was saved by faith Noah was saved by faith we go into hebrews and see all the way to the beginning of time that man has always been saved through faith and not obedience in other words faith in doing and obeying the law was not in the actual actions but they look forward to Christ the Redeemer, the Messiah of Genesis 3.16. It was the type and the antitype that we looked at several weeks ago. God knew that he would send a Savior, and he knew when he would send that Redeemer. For God is not a reactor, but he is the one who actually moves the chess piece of history and time. And that's important for us to understand. What Paul is trying to say here as we go on with this passage is that Paul is communicating that the law was temporary as it served to reveal sin and to guide the people for their need for a redeemer. And so in here, Paul is saying God has prepared or is preparing his children to inherit. We understand that. If somebody who is wealthy has a lot of money, and He sometime comes He says, well, I need to then give this to these children. He prepares them to, how, to know how to handle that. He does so by putting them under guardians and managers, and so they may learn what to do when they receive it. In the same way, God has preparing the people of Israel and the people for the coming of the Redeemer. Now, you and I look back to that. But in this case, they are looking at something that has just happened And so they're confused because they've always been looking forward to it. And so now there is a change happening. So we see that God plans for the welfare of his children by preparing his children to inherit. And the law was that guardian. We saw that last week and we explored that concept. The law was there to help them to understand their need of a savior. Now in verses 3, we see the second way in which God has been preparing his children as he performs the necessary tasks in order for his children to inherit. So not only has he been preparing them for the day when they will inherit, but he's also doing everything necessary in order for them to do so. Look, at in the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born in the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoptions as sons. Paul now applies this analogy, this illustration, to his readers. Now the word enslaved, when he says we were enslaved, it refers to the state of living under the law. And though that may seem contradictory or seem odd, they were in slavery in such a way is that they had obeyed these rules and these regulations. It was a burden in the fact to live that way was very difficult, it was very hard to continually live out those rules and regulations. The elementary principles could refer to the worldly culture that they lived in, it could refer to sin, and it could even mean demonic influences. But the point that Paul is trying to make here is that they were still under sin and the curse of death at one time. Thomas Schreiner writes that the period of infancy and immaturity refers to that era of salvation history when the Mosaic law was in force. In other words, they could not stop sinning. There was no deliverance from the penalty of sin or from the power of sin there was only a placeholder who could put some salve on it and allow God to overlook it for a time being. He says you were enslaved to that. But then he goes on to say, but that time is no longer. For the fullness of time, when he says, when the fullness of time had come, God did what? He sent his Son. The fullness of time refers to the realization of God's saving promise in Christ and just as an earthly father appoints a time for his children and inherit so did our Heavenly Father he says there is a time we're ready now you're ready to accept the inheritance you've reached the age the time has matured the law was intended to be force only until Christ the Messiah the Redeemer comes and the reign of the law ceased when Christ came You may want to mark some of these scriptures out. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. As Jesus begins his ministry, it says that he came into Galilee and he was proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let me say this with you. That message is still the gospel. When you and I preach, the message must be consistent with the gospel of repent and believe in the gospel. For the kingdom of God is at hand. We've kind of lost that, I think. We now sell the gospel as here. Well, Let God, let Jesus be your great yoga teacher. He's the great sensei. And that's how we see life. But by him, we see that command is still there. But the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Paul is reminding them that Jesus, the Son of God, was born of a woman, born under the law. Again, phrases that you and I would not use today, but it has a special meaning, that the dominion of sin and curse was in full effect, and that Jesus, that he was a human, born under the law, and that he was required to obey perfectly all its requirements. Now, when I say Jesus is a human, we understand that, that he was both human and that he was both God. But it's important for us to remember as we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation. In other words, when he came into, uh, in, came into his human form, he was born of a woman and he was under the dominion of sin in which the world was sinful. We're not saying that he was sinful, but he's under that dominion. He was under the law. He was required to do all that the law required. John MacArthur writes, considers this, Like all men, Jesus was obligated to obey God's law. And unlike anyone else, however, he obeyed perfectly that law. That's the distinction that Paul is making here. You see, Jesus' sinlessness made him the unblemished sacrifice for sin, who perfectly obeyed God in everything. That perfect righteousness is what is imputed or given, counted to you and I for those who believe in Him. Acts chapter 13, you may want to write that down on the back of your bulletin. Acts 13, 38 and 39 says, Let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man, speaking of Jesus, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you and by Him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What is Paul sharing here? Is that the fullness of time. The child now was able to receive that blessing. He had reached the age, but he did not have to do anything to do so. All that was required is that God took all the necessary steps. As God previewed history, he said, This is when I'm sending my son. This is when I'm deciding that the period of salvation history is now mature, and I'm sending him to there. Jesus is able to accomplish all of this to free us from what the law could not free us from, because he is the true offspring of Genesis 3:16. Jesus is the true Israel of Exodus 4:22. Jesus is the true Son of God in John chapter 3, verse 16. J.I. Packer, who is a theologian, writes that Jesus Christ our Lord, moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise inescapably destined. And so won us forgiveness adoption, and glory. For God did the necessary steps to free us from those elementary principles of the world that you and I were enslaved to. Let me ask you today, would you accept that? There's some of you that believe that God hasn't taken the necessary steps. You feel like there's something else that you must do to be made right with God. But let me tell you, Scripture tells us that Jesus did it all for you and I. It's not our works. It's not our obedience that makes us right with God. Jesus accomplished everything for us. Would you accept that today? Would you live that out in your life? Let me tell you, you might have accepted it, and you might be trying, but would you rest in that? Would you rest in the knowledge that's found in Hebrews that you and I no longer have to strive of trying to please God for our salvation? We're made right with Him. And may that rest strengthen you for the battle. For there is one battle that you and I have. And that's fighting the presence of sin. We've been sharing this on Sunday morning in Sunday school. We see that Christ came and defeated the power of sin and the penalty of sin. But that presence of sin that you and I must fight. But we see that God performed the necessary task when the fullness of time came. And God prepared his children to inherit it. As we celebrate Christmas this year, you and I are reminded that the days of immaturity have ended, and that God sent his son to free us from the curse of death and slavery to sin. That's why we have joy this morning. That's why we can light a candle and say rejoice. And we can say rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, but I think there's so many of us that are walking around and there's nothing but joy in our lives. Our facial expressions and our bodies, we're so beaten down by life that there's no joy left. There's no joy to see in our hearts. People look at us, and there's no distinction between us and the world. But let me tell you, the Bible says to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Why? Because what Christ has done for us. Not only did he accomplish this, but God also extended the wonderful privilege of being adopted as his children. Remember, God could have done all the things of salvation. He did not have to make us his children and his heirs. It's a bonus. That's something wonderful that he did. He could have just saved us from his penalty. He could have just made us right. But he does more than that. He enters into an intimate relationship with each and every one of us. Does that make a difference in your life? Is that part of the gospel? Has that become true? Is it a reality? So not only did God prepare his children to inherit, by sending the law in order that we may see our need of a Savior. There's some of you that may not see your need for a Savior. Let me tell you, go to the law. You will find yourselves that there is a great need. We also see that God plans for the welfare of his children by doing all that was necessary for us to receive. And then thirdly, in Paul's last point, is Paul presents his children now with an inheritance. There comes to a time when that child, when he reads 18, 25, 30, he's looking, tomorrow I get my inheritance. Tomorrow I get my my due reward. And he waits for it. Just as a child will be waiting uh, Christmas Eve or Christmas morning to tear in those presents. It's not enough to just have them under the tree. It's not enough just to write their name on it. And it's not enough just to encourage them and say, this is yours, this is yours, this is yours. One day you get to open it, one day you get to open it. There's got to be a day when you actually get to open it, right? When you get to say, this is mine. I get to enjoy this. Well, that day is here, my friend. Because number three, God presents his children with the inheritance. God presents his children with his inheritance. And see, you and I, that's a looking back. We're 2,000 years in which that inheritance has been given over to us. Look at verses 6 and 7, and he writes, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and and, and a son, then an heir through God. In these verses, we see the implication of the gospel. In Christ we are made sons of God, we receive the Holy Spirit, we inherit the blessings of Abraham, and we have a new relationship with the Father. And this is important, please stay alert with me. For this new relationship leads to gratitude. As Paul writes that our hearts crying, Abba, Father, crying here denotes a loud and earnest cry as a child for his father. Now, I need to take a moment and talk about the word Abba. Several weeks ago, I must confess, I gave you some wrong information. I know it happens so little, and you usually just look over it. But there has been a misconception, and I did not do any looking into the word. I just accepted what's been taught to me for years, and I don't want you to repeat my mistake. The word Abba does not mean daddy. And that's what I gave you several weeks ago. Abba is an Aramaic word for father or for papa. It's not daddy. And in it, many times, those of us who have used the word daddy, we're trying to tell you about the intimacy of that word. And in it, I gave you a misconception, so I want to clear that up as we go forth further. It is a Aramaic word for father, maybe even for the word papa, which denotes an intimate relationship. But it Abba actually is a word that means father with great respect. It's a child addressing his father with a mixture of great love, devotion, and respect. So I just want to give that to you so you don't repeat my error. I have thought that word meant that forever. Uh, so I don't want to repeat it. But the word Papa in in Aramaic, that's probably its best translation. It's a mixture of great devotion and great respect. It's not a belittling of making him our daddy, and that's what we're that's usually what we're trying to say, but I want you to make sure we understand it. And that word Abba, though, is still important. Jesus used this phrase at the garden on the night he was betrayed in Mark chapter 14. When Jesus fell on the ground and prayed at that garden in Gethsemane, when he says, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible. You remove this cup from me. What he was doing, he was addressing an intimate of great devotion and great respect in asking him to pass this cup. Praise God, God did not make that cup pass but he made him to drink fully on our behalf. This phrase comes very clear to me this week. As I was reading an article by Russell Moore, and he was writing on the frustration and the anger and the rage that many times is depicted in hip-hop music and rap. But many times there's an anger and a rage, and that's been kind of a discussion in Christian circles for a couple weeks now. And I, to be honest, I'm going to tell you, I don't get rap. It's not a preference for me. And I do struggle. So the question was, but is there Christian rap? Can there be such a thing as a rap in which it blesses God? And my first thing is, well, but rap always seems so angry and so uh, rage in it to me. Now, that's my perception. But Russell Moore brought something very good and a poignant part. He writes this. Eminem, in one of his songs, rages against his father when he raps, Because he split, I wonder if he even kissed me goodbye. Jay-Z sings of being a kid torn apart once his pop disappeared. He asks the void, Do you even remember the tender boy you turned into a cold, young Man, these men know the private hell of a father who walked away. I don't understand that fully. Maybe a little bit, but not fully. And we now have several generations of young men and women who are now raising children who never knew their father or had a very tenuous relationship. That's why this became very poignant as I reflected on you and I able to go to an almighty God, the creator of the universe, the ultimate power, and we can come and say, Abba, Father. I don't know what type of relationship you had with your father, or if you've even had one. I don't know if it was strong. I don't know if you maybe didn't even know your father. Maybe your father was like so many of us, where we're distant and preoccupied and removed from the lives of our children. But you and I do know the importance of a father in the life of a child, do we not? Even as adults. Take your Bibles if you turn with me to Romans chapter 8. For you and I must come to understand that God prepares for the welfare of his children by eventually making us children and giving us an inheritance. For many young men, there is no expectation from their fathers. And for you and I, maybe we've been the same way. We struggle with knowing a good, wise father because we've never experienced one here. And so what you and I do is whatever our experiences with our fathers, our mothers, and those that we grew up, you know what we do? Is we put those on other people. And that's something to understand is as young married, you will see in your 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 new wife your mother, and vice versa. You'll see. You'll take the expectations. For one couple who marries again, for those of you who have been remarried, have you not taken? the lessons from the first marriage, and you also put them on the second person, your second marriage? We do. If people have failed us, you expect other people to fail you, right? And so for many of us, we look at the Father in heaven, and we take our earthly father, or maybe whatever, what father figure, or lack of father figure, and we put it on him, and then we struggle. That's why this verse is so powerful. Look at Romans, though, chapter 8. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry once again, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Let me say this. I've said a lot, and maybe we could say more. But wherever you are on the ideal of father, however you may view God, whatever shortcomings or hurts that you may have, let me tell you this, God heals, and God fills that void. If I could have Jay-Z and Eminem, I would tell you, I know of a father who will never split. I will know, let me tell you about a father who will never leave you cold, but will heal your broken heart and fill you with warmth and give you an idea of what a man is supposed to be and what a man is supposed to do. That's why we have so many hopeless young men. And I say young men, but to be honest, we're several generations into it. God gives his children inheritance. And in that inheritance, listen to this. This is what God says. When he gives us inheritance, he says you are mine. It's more than just some sperm donor who says, "Yeah, that's my kid. I guess I got to pay child support or I guess I got to go visit him once a weekend." It's more than that. He says, "You're mine." And I have something precious to give you. I have something special to share with you. And I want to hold you in. And I want to have an intimate relationship. I want you to know that father. Do you know him today? Have you experienced him in that way? Have you received your inheritance? Are you holding out with both hands and say, give it to me. I'm ready to accept it. Are you looking at him as one who is grateful and sees him as a father who loves you? So many of us, we want to profess them, but we rather have a God who's distant. We'd rather have a God who doesn't get involved in my life. We chaff as young people when our fathers tells us something to do or gives us advice. And let's be honest, even as young men, we still chaff when our fathers want to treat us as little kids and still give us advice. But let me tell you, here's a father who's wise and is a good God father. Good God and king. Thomas Schreider once again concludes that believers are no longer minors, living in the old age of redemptive history. We're no longer slaves under the tyranny of sin. They have now reached full adulthood as God's sons. They have been redeemed from the laws and have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Since they are sons, they are also heirs. The promises of Abraham's are theirs. God looks after the welfare of his children. But let me give you this one last thing, warning. I may be preaching to the choir, but maybe not. For let me tell you that not everybody is a children of God. We like to throw that phrase, we are all God's children. You hear it all the time. I want to give you a Greek word for that. It's called hogwash. We may be all created by God, but we're not all God's children. We're all made in the likeness of God, but we're not all His children. God says that He'll draw His children to Him. And I pray that you would open your hearts and you would either today confirm that He's called you or that you would pray, Lord, call me. Draw me to yourself. Romans tells us that His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If there's any doubt would you make it today? Say, Father, come in. Let me be your child. Be my father. And trust in that. For that is the gospel. Please do not leave here this morning without that secure. I want to give you a challenge and then we'll close with that. Three challenges that you and I must know, must do, and must be from this passage. The first thing is you and I need to know that God rules over history. God decided when to send his son. In Acts chapter 2, it says this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In chapter 4 of Acts, it says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. For many of us, we always feel like God is the great reactor. In other words, you and I do whatever we want, and then God must then make adjustments. But let me tell you, no, we have a God that rules over history and over all the pieces and all the uh, people. So God says here that he put everyone in path in play. Herod was there. The Gentiles were there. The Jewish people were there. Rome did not rule that place just because they were the most powerful nation, but because God put them in place to do so. Pontius Pilate was not there because someone screwed up. And just because he just happened to be the next man, God said, no, I need him there. And God placed him there. His very existence is owed to the fact that God says that's when Christ will come and he needs to be judged and condemned and you and I need to know that God rules over history and if he rules over that history he rules over you and I that's the type of God we have a providential God who when the fullness of time came the Bible also tells us the second thing that you and I that's what we must know what you and I must do is to trust a good wise sovereign God For once we come to accept that He is, we must trust in Him. Dan Kruver writes that God redeemed us in His Son so that He might love us and delight in us as He loves and delights in His eternal Son. Adoption is God's act of making room with His triune love for the prodigals who are without hope, of which I would say I am one, and providing them with homes in this world and the world to come. Do you believe that? Do you trust that we have a good sovereign king? Do you trust in his decisions for you? Do you trust in the opportunities? Do you trust in even the most difficult times that he brings? Ephesians chapter 1 says this, Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, You and I need to trust that God's going to one day unite us completely to Him and that we're in His hands. And then the third, the thing that you and I are to be is we need to be grateful. You and I need to be grateful for the privilege of being adopted into His family. Tom Schreiner, an author, wrote, To gain Christ, it is to receive all That is in Him. Righteousness, salvation, eternal life, redemption, sanctification, adoption, the fullness of God's good things are for us. Many of us are like a little child who opens a present and then is so involved in that one present, he neglects all the other presents with his name on them. God has so much for you. Yeah, it may not be a rose-colored garden, but let me tell you, God has good gifts for you. Every perfect gift is from above, from our Father of lights. Would you be grateful? Is that your heart this morning? Job said, hey, whether in the good or the bad, I'm going to be grateful. Are you joyful? What does he say in James? Be joyful. Joyful or be thankful for all the times of trouble. Be grateful. For you and I are not left to orphans as we read earlier, but are brought into the family of God. Here's the last encouraging word I'd like to give you. It's found in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. When Paul writes to that church, and he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. That's my prayer for you this morning. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and height, and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Take those words to heart this morning and may God's prayer Strengthen you, encourage you. Father, we come before you thanking you for your word. Lord, let us listen with joy. And now you call us to obedience, to know, Lord, that you are a good sovereign king who is providential over all things. Lord, to to trust that you are a good wise king and that all that you do is for your glory and for our benefit. And Father, may that lead us to be grateful as children. Lord, we thank you for your word. Strengthen us in it this morning. Father, convict us of our need of a Savior. If there's any here that needs you, bring them to your heart this morning. In your name we pray.
0: Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you.